Hello, I'm David Mosgrob. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. The COVID-19 virus has upended life around the world. There's no need to summarize the toll that the pandemic is taking. That can be done with a glance at the news, the empty streets, social media, or one's own home. On this special episode of Open to Debate, I sit down remotely with professor, author, parent, and friend, Amanda Watson. We discuss how she and others are managing life during the pandemic and how a lens of compassion and care can help us navigate this difficult time. The question for us now then is, how do we manage life during COVID-19? As mentioned, I'm joined by Amanda Watson, feminist theorist, lecturer at Simon Fraser University, and author of The Juggling Mother, Coming Undone in the Age of Anxiety. Like so many others right now, we are together, apart, recording this episode from our homes. Maybe the question that we should all be asking one another more often, but especially right now, how are you doing? <laughs> Hi, David. Thank you Hi. for having me. <laughs> I am buzzing. I am mm-hmm. feeling that strange cognitive dissonance That's it's really up and down. I think everyone's facing this right now, trying to manage and adjust to the day-to-day changes while having big picture chaos that's weighing on me mentally in kind of fits and starts. So um, really up and down, I would say. So let's get right into the inequities in the way that we're talking about this. (laughs) Everybody goes home and we start talking immediately about productivity as if there isn't a crisis unfolding around us, as if we're not anxious and as if some folks might not have children at home that they need to take care of now all day, every day. (laughs) You have two young children and you're a professor. How do you find the tension between this productivity dialogue and the fact that you are a carer? Oh man, well, I'm finding it uh, maddening, completely insensitive on the part of employers and administrators who are either failing to grasp the situation. It's just frustrating, you know, and and overwhelming, but also in a way liberating because I've always taught about how productivity and care are antithetical, you know, like care is inflexible. Um, When the baby slips in the bathtub, you got to reach out your arm, you know, you can't be worried about productivity when you're doing something like that. It's also been a bit liberating for me to realize that I'm just in this and people can email me all they want. I can either let it stress me out while I am unable to get to it, or I can not let it stress me out while I'm unable to get to it. (laughs) So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I'm frustrated, but then I sort of like take a step back and think I'm doing all I can. And the best thing that I can do is actually just care for people around me who maybe don't have the toddlers right in front of them demanding their attention, you know? So there's a moment to, if not necessarily issue productivity, at least redefine what it means to be productive. We could all agree right now that we're going to take it easy on ourselves and one another and that we're going to think about productivity both in terms of producing what we have to produce as workers, but also caring for ourselves and one another. Now productivity means self-care. It means uh, raising children. It means Mm -hmm. taking care of your neighbors. It means Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, Uh, yes. Except that we're all in this together. It's an extraordinary moment. And the usual standards of productivity just aren't going to apply anymore, right? You mean you write about this in your work. We try to do everything. Maybe this is a moment where we have to accept we just simply can't do that. Yeah, I think that's really smart to think about productivity as including being relational with your partner or family, interrupting 
anxiety as you feel it building in your body by doing something um, like self-care. Like those things are productive. In my classes, I teach on capitalism and how capitalist culture instills a very narrow sense of productivity. And I tell my students, you know, what if we thought about productivity as having tea with somebody and not checking our phones? Can we think about our value in the world differently? In material terms, I mean, also, I think for a lot of people right now, three hours a day of traditional work is going to be pretty good. And maybe one hour a day is right. I mean, part of it's going to be redefining our expectations of not just what productivity is, but how much we deliver under the lens of traditional productivity. I mean, if I can get through three hours right now, it's a good day for me. And I'd imagine if you're a parent caring for kids at home, one hour would be significant, right? It's funny that you say three hours, three to four hours a day. My partner and I, we say like together we have done one work day. So I think you're right to say that like if you're a caregiver, you're caring for elder relatives or or children, three hours a day is not realistic over the long term. So that's interesting and strange. And strange. Yeah. I mean, we know, for instance, from, from literature already that when people say they work 90 hours a week, what they're really saying is they sit somewhere that they consider to be a workplace for 90 hours, but they certainly don't produce 90 hours worth of stuff. There's a very steep diminishing return after a certain period of time. Right. And I would imagine that right now that's heightened given the, the circumstances under which we're operating. Well, I mean, I question my deep work though, right now. Like, I think I buy into this idea that we need to take good breaks and we need to work deeply and productively and not for too long But right now when I'm working, I am distracted. So Mm -hmm. even my output that's been squished, I've gotten into a couple of good zones when grading papers or whatever. But, you know, between each paper, I want to check the newsfeed. This is why we're texting so much now. We're texting constantly. I've actually been so grateful. <laughs> I've been so grateful. No, me I'm too. Like, okay, I need to dump my brain out. I just have like constant chat with you and, and other friends. You know, it's just. <laughs> uh, the group chats have really come alive. And I, and I found that at this moment, I mean, I joke that we're all in this together apart, but we are. I mean, we might be hundreds of kilometers away, thousands of kilometers away. We might be, as one of my friends uh, is, 800 meters away. <laughs> but I'm switching between 12 messaging apps a day. Checking in with people, talking, making jokes, and so on. And yet, I do feel connected. It's not quite the same thing, obviously, as being in the same room. But there is something there. And I wonder, how do we then reconceive, I think, of our relationships with those around us in our life? We are doing them remotely. But do you have any strategies that you're using right now for checking in? Oh, this is such a good question. I've been obsessively thinking about this because I study care, care Mm -hmm. labor, and in some ways, I do feel more connected to certain people than I ever have. Like, we're suddenly all in the same circumstances, no matter our circumstances. And that sort of brings tears to my eyes. It's sort of overwhelming how united we are and, and have to be. At the same time, I worry about the sentient aspect of care. Like, care theorists throughout the 70s to 90s tried to hammer out a definition of what it means to care as they were trying to get women's work visibilized, you know, and recognized as work. And one of the aspects of care is being responsive and being able to feel the needs of someone else. I think we are going to have to adapt our instincts. Our instincts are going to need to evolve around like when our friend 
needs care because we might not have a, a weird exchange with them at the water cooler, so to speak, you know? So our feedback mechanisms, being a good carer is going to need to evolve digitally. This puts a lot of pressure on emojis. <laughs> I've always put too much pressure on emojis. I, I have to say, I used to think they were silly, and then I started realizing that they really are an important part of communicating digitally. I mean, they do communicate a lot of information that it's hard to communicate through, either through words or through a font. Or, it's so funny yeah. that you say that. Like, I emailed the associate dean the other day at the university full of emoji, and I, I said, sorry, this is how I communicate now. <laughs> It's going to help build the resilience we need. I mean, every day I set myself three goals. They're a combination of modest and less modest goals. So oh, I've seen these goals. You've seen my goals. So some of them are very, very plain. Some of them are like, you know, some days I, it's a write a column. Other days it's clean the apartment or order groceries or whatever it might be. And I, I find that after that, I give myself permission to do whatever I please. And one of those things is constantly sort of checking in on the news and checking in on people mm. and being present as possible through these online relationships. And yet the social solidarity is going to have to extend beyond that. So I'm working on a column and I put a call out and said, OK, what are people doing to build community, to protect their community, to, to do what has been this neologism, quote-unquote, a caremonger. The result was overwhelming. I couldn't keep up with all of the messages I was getting and all of the replies. Mm -hmm. So the communities are responding. And I'm wondering, when you look out as someone who, who studies care and, and you take a, a lens of compassion and solidarity, what are you seeing that's encouraging you right now? I've been seeing the same thing. There is kind of collectivist language mm. that I don't think any of us have ever seen politically. I've seen... Not, not in the mainstream. Someone corrected me very quickly yesterday to say that, for instance, like indigenous communities or disabled communities have been doing this for years. It's just everyone yes. else is catching up to them. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. Like in disability justice circles, it's all about dropping someone's medications off for them or taking them to the doctor, you know, so... These people are used to surviving this way in kinship networks, and they've had to to survive. I think about care and trust differently than atomized nuclear families or individuals. You know, um, so I think that's true. People are canceling their hair appointments but paying their hairstylist. People are, you know, offering their able bodies to deliver things if they need to. People are donating to their Bakeries, bakeries are repurposing themselves to, you know, provide bread for people who can't afford food. I've seen so much community spirit. I mean, even last week when I was attempting to be one of the hoarders at Superstore, <laughs> everyone was very nice to each other. It's never like that. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. Usually it's very competitive. There was a real spirit in the air. We're all in this together. It's fascinating that the collectivist language you mentioned to me is so central to all of this. All of a sudden, I don't want to make it seem like everyone has all of a sudden discovered solidarity as if some, well, for one, some haven't, but two, lots of communities have been practicing these, right. these as if it's uh, never practices existed. for a long time. They're just, yeah, yeah, exactly. They've just gone mainstream. And of course, that means they'll be appropriated and, and we'll all act as if, you know, the average person on the street invented this right we shouldn't forget that that's been going on in these communities for a long time but at the same time i mean i'm stuck inside because i am presumably high risk because of a lung issue and, and the only way to find out is to 
get sick and that's not going to happen if I can help right. it. I'd rather <laughs> not find out. But from what I'm seeing and hearing from people, it's everything from the nod on the street to the smile from six feet to mm-hmm. people who are spontaneously, like you mentioned, organizing these groups and these outings or repurposing their business willingly and without being asked, try to serve the community. Uh, that's remarkably encouraging to me that we can mm-hmm. band together when we have a common purpose and a common other or common foe that isn't, thank God, a person, a, a person or a group. Yeah. <laughs> right. it, is, it is a virus. But what happens next? Can we take this and parlay this into a new kind of politics of compassion, mm-hmm. of care, of inclusion in the weeks and months and in years to come? That's a good question. And it totally depends on the minute um, of my mental health <laughs> yes, <laughs> at <right>. the moment. <laughs> it's like climate. It's like totally. asking someone about climate. Yeah. It's good that you brought up climate. I think I've been like in my recent work, I've been looking to cross issue activism and organizing for lessons to think about what the climate movement needs and indigenous activists and disability justice activists in particular have a lot to offer about what solidarity looks like and that's inspiring. I've been thinking about how labor is restructured from now on and when I'm feeling optimistic, I think basic income, mm-hmm. housing, a positive rights framework, the restructuring of food systems, local food movements, nationalizing elements of the supply chain, protecting workers. In my less optimistic moments, I think about gig work proliferating and precarious work being forced on more people. And right. we know that inequality is going to result in, I think, a faster death than it even has been. You know, if we talk about income inequality as a kind of a slow death for those on the bottom end, I think it could get worse. I worry that it will through the virus. I think that obviously people who are not sustainably housed, people who are incarcerated, Mm -hmm. those are the scary thoughts. There's a real concern, I think, that the types of entities that survive this will be the big multinational oh. conglomerates who enable a lot of the problems we've got in the first place, low wage earning, mm-hmm. gig economy, so on and so forth. That you know, Uber, for instance, has said, well, we've got lots of cash to ride this out. Oh, so great. So the gigification of transportation, which rewarded. is bad for the planet yeah. already, mm-hmm. and it's precarious and so on. I'm since, sure they're right? making money. <laughs> exactly. And so this is my concern is that it, it puts an awful lot of pressure on communities to find ways to support and government, I mean governments, let's be honest. There's been an encouraging response from the government so far. I do give the Trudeau government credit for the handling of this so far. There's obviously got to be more to come because if Mm -hmm. not, it's all going to be McDonald's and Uber and Amazon and Molson Canadian. Oh and, God! And who wants that? And and that's my concern is that I can't do that. There's a moment where we lock or we lock in. We can't. We can't no, go you back. can't go back to that. No. <laughs> Vancouver might survive of anyone, but that's the corporate side that worries me. But yes. then there's the government side, too, is if the government takes extraordinary powers at this moment, mm-hmm. which they have under various legislation, including the Emergencies Act, yes. which they haven't invoked yet, but they might. How do we check that and make sure that it doesn't get abused and doesn't get normalized, for instance, as extraordinary behavior did after 9-11? Right. The surveillance state, for instance, right? I mean, I don't, I don't want AI, Clearview, whatever, to be 
following me down the street because I think maybe I have a virus today, but following me down the street for some other reason tomorrow. I am terrified of that. I am not a person who the state has punished, you know, so I would prefer to see more state power than corporate power if, if that means protecting people. But we know this is a colonial state and it only protects certain people. And so I don't know across the board where people would fall there. But I also know that resistance has always been a part of capitalism. It's always been a part of the nation state. And I do think we're headed for increased surveillance society things in the age of pandemic. I think our phones are going to tell us when we can and can't get on the plane based on who we've been in contact with. I, like, I wouldn't be surprised to see that. I'm terrified of that, but I think we will get creative like we always do. So active resistance will happen. I think they're unprecedented. A lot of organization going on now, too, that groups and people are getting ready mm-hmm. to make something of this moment because we're at a critical juncture. I mean, it's fascinating to me because on the one hand, we're all trying to get through the day. We're setting moderate goals. We're trying to care for our communities, our families, children. We're trying to check in with our friends. We're trying to manage our own anxiety. I'm going to buy a digital piano. (laughs) (laughs) It's time. We all have to do our part. (laughs) One of my favorite films is The Brothers Bloom. And Rachel Weisz's character is presumed to have severe allergies and has been shut into her house for years. And there's a cut scene where she displays all the things she's learned from playing the piano to like juggling flaming objects or, or <laughs> chainsaws or something. I can't remember exactly what. But it's to laugh at that and think, if only. Right. And now I'm thinking, well, maybe I need to get a chainsaw. Right. scene. <laughs> I think the caregivers are so jealous of this moment for others, like, you know, that, that sure. other people are maybe experiencing because I would love to have life stop for a second when you're caring for somebody you are sort of you're mindful so I understand it's also a privilege to be able to have something steal my complete focus you know like a slip in the bathtub you you're not thinking about email for that moment I'm heartened by what you say you know that we are seeing organization and solidarity and I'm seeing a lot of acts of kindness and reason to hope especially you know, people really starting to take social distancing seriously and encourage others to do the same. And I wonder if this is a more natural way for us to be. Like suddenly people are really exercising their social kind of activities in a, in a different way, but we're all being really social. And my partner and I have been talking about how this life for us has been easier and more grounded than the daily grind prior to being in quarantine. Because you're home with one another and your kids? We're home with the kids. We are able to, like, start cooking food when it needs to be cooked rather than just, like, throwing the frozen thing in. And sure. Yeah, we're just, like, a little bit more connected. We're, we're remaining six feet apart in the house, and we're using separate bathrooms and hand towels. <laughs> <laughs> but that will come to an end. Um, yeah, I hope that as a culture, as a society, we are learning a big lesson here about the way human beings want to relate to one another, even if it's, you know, together apart. Before I distracted myself with that Brothers Bloom monologue (laughs) earlier, what I was building to was that, was that it's a critical juncture. Is that something Mm. that we would prefer not to have happened, something tragic and terrifying has happened. Mm -hmm. That's the fact. We've got to deal with it. That we have a decision to make both during this about how we're going to comport ourselves and behave towards one another especially, but also after how we want to live together. 
this moment we've not chosen it, but it's here. And now mm-hmm. we get to decide how we live together. Yeah. And I wonder if there are certain practices and certain programs that are adopted and then kept. And we know from studying institutions, from studying histories, that these moments pop up, something mm-hmm. happens, they chart a new course, certain mm-hmm. things are adopted, and they remain adopted. For instance, the yes. way that the Black Plague enabled the rise of democracy by empowering the laboring class. For instance. For instance, just uh, off the top <laughs> of my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what I've been thinking the most about is disability justice movements and reconceiving how we think about people's ability to work. I mean, reconceiving like how we think about work, like keeping children alive is something that maybe people within the household are going to have to do rather than outsourcing as much as we used to. But I think that we might learn that bodies are dynamic. Their work is volatile. Bodies are unpredictable. Work is unpredictable. And if we start to think about ourselves with some degree of compassion through this tipping point, there's reason to hope. I think we're going to remain terrified. But as we see what happens in a post-pandemic world, which I think will be sort of a constant state of pandemic ups and downs and responding to bed availability at hospitals and that kind of thing, it's going to connect us to how bodies work in a way that we haven't since, you know, this welfare state. I'm just catching up with that point. (laughs) It's really focused us on things we haven't been focused on in the past. It's really easy, I guess, as individuals in a capitalist society to move along as sort of automatons, as producers, and not think about any of this. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you have to think about it. It perhaps shifts the attention a little bit. This, I think, is good for the planet. I think this is connecting us to our humanity. I think, yeah, the optimist in me does see the potential for us to value more bodies differently. If we think about bodies through a lens other than a capitalist one, I think we stand to gain as a society. So that makes me really happy. Feminist political theorists have been trying to center care in discussions of democracy forever. And it's never stuck. And I think it (laughs) is because we are not the unencumbered, productive workers. I I really do. And I think this stands to shift the way we conceive of these things. I mean, anyone who's now at home with their kids who's never done that before is is having a wake-up call. (laughs) Suddenly everyone's going to be writing about care work. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) You were the hipster, the original (laughs) care work. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, the irony is, though, that it's all going to be the single professional salaried men who are churning out books. <laughs> the ones <laughs> who put their hands up yeah. because they, they yeah, think that they've got something to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not writing anything anytime soon. I mean, I'd love to. I have one of my goals for the week is to set up a journaling habit that might actually stick and to sort of start to structure an autoethnography out of this mm. that I one day be able to write. But I know my colleagues who can write it right now. You know? So yes. we will see those inequities persist, for sure. There's been a ton out there about how this is very bad for feminism. And gender divisions of labor are being exacerbated. Violence against women is a terrifying threat to women's lives and children's lives. I go back and forth between what I think is positive in terms of how we might like just think about the value of our bodies differently, but also... I worry that we will need to work really hard to resist increasing established inequities. So this is where the the pressure on the government ought to be very particularly applied in saying that to the extent that these inequities are exacerbated, 
for instance, around domestic violence, it is incumbent on the government to immediately act to alleviate risk and suffering. I mean, mm -hmm. we know that this is a problem. We know that this is a problem that's getting immediately much worse. We know that you need to have spaces for people to leave that, and that's going to cost mm -hmm. money, and we need to pay it. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care how much I have to pay in taxes to do it. It's just morally incumbent on us. And if it's morally incumbent on us now, it's morally incumbent on us always. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is one of the things mm -hmm. I found so fascinating, encouraging, but also deeply frustrating about this moment is that all of the the pathologies and inequities and struggles that persist all the time mm -hmm. are coming to the surface. For instance, frontline workers who don't have adequate pay or treatment or equipment right uh, say, well shouldn't we care about them always yeah yeah this makes me think of how certain movements have been thinking about inequity and inequality in the context of climate change and there's a small movement out of the uk called the birth strike movement they get misinterpreted all the time as colonial kind of population control rhetoric when in fact their argument is that inequality is what is causing climate change because people who are wealthy emit more and extractive industries are killing us. I was so struck by thinking about inequality as the cause for something so universal in a way. I've also been thinking about like universal design principles in education and how if you want to make something accessible for some, the way you do that is to make it accessible for all. And I'm thinking about governance that way right now. How does the state deal with something like domestic violence? Well, we've never been able to because we have siloed, you know, homes and our socialization and gender education is deeply flawed. But I wonder if it's time for the state to consider a curriculum for us all that is the same and equally flexible so that it actually benefits people equally. I don't know what that would look like, but I think as a principal, it'd be interesting to think like instead of plugging the holes in the welfare state right now or like repairing the tears in the safety net that have been ripped even wider open for all to see we do away with that uh, safety net and, and try again I and mean, it happened once you know it happened after world war ii why can't it happen again now i think it has to i think you're right i mean I, and again we see critical junctures in the 1930s we see them in the 1940s and 50s and the 80s for that matter right sometimes we see significant progress in the aftermath mm -hmm. of tragedy Sometimes we see the 1980s, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> which sets up the the mess that we have in part today. Totally. Yeah. This time we have a chance to succeed. As I mentioned, I'm setting a couple of goals. I'm staying in touch with my friends, but I'm giving myself an awful lot of permission to just ride out the moment. Have you adopted any strategies or practices? that you've found useful? This is a good question. I am sort of flying through life. So right now, either my partner or I, we're waking up at like 4.30 a.m. or whatever to try to get at 90 minutes or two hours of work done before the kids wake up. And then we're each trying to do like little half hour calls here and there. Like I just took a call from the forest the other day and one of the kids fell down and people were just crying into the speakerphone of the boardroom. <laughs> uh, so it's been like totally chaotic and then once we do all of these sort of back and forths taking the kids and dogs around the block for walks so that's sort of all we can do then we work in the evening for an hour or two and just crash to sleep and do it all again so not enough sleep too much time on our phones while we're trying to watch the kids so they're starting to feel that and it's not good 
So one of the things I'm thinking of implementing is whether it's going to be like time or a space or both is um, tech free zone. I think it's Mm -hmm. going to be a place in the house. It's also going to be maybe like a quantity of time per day when each person gets to go there. And because right now, if our devices are our lifelines, it's too distracting and it causes too much anxiety. I think going forward, we're going to need these like pause spaces so that we don't have panic attacks. And then also, I think one of the things I haven't turned to, and I know you already have, is how to check in on people. I have to call my grandmother. I haven't called her. I'm not sure why. Something's stopping me from doing that. I'm not sure when I'll see her. I think that part of what I can give is to put reaching out to people in my own goals, you know, and I haven't done that yet. Maybe I don't have the space yet. I also think one of the moves you have to make is, is accepting that sometimes for whatever reason we are depleted. I mean, you're, you're caring for, well, at least three people right now, which is more than, than most. And adding a fourth is tough. I also think we ought not to treat ourselves too harshly right now and say, well, why didn't I do everything? Right. And then rather if if there's any takeaway from this discussion, I think that's it. Give permission, as you say. And this is a feminist thing, right? Like giving yourself permission to stop with the punishing thoughts of productivity is a radical act of care right now. I think it always has been in capitalism. And I think now we are confronting just how powerful that can be in terms of our mental health. Absolutely. And, and I think not only is it the healthy thing to do, it's it's necessary because people are going to learn very quickly. If mm. we don't do that, we're going to burn to a crisp. I mean, you just cannot live like this. But that's a real health crisis in itself, you know? Yeah, exactly. Everyone sort of pretends to care about mental health institutionally. And yet the resources dedicated to it are tiny or, or inadequate. And if course the boss then turns around and says okay yeah but i need that thing mm-hmm. hashtag bell let's talk yeah right, right? i mean it, and it's <laughs> but now a, well, that like, boss is in quarantine it. and thinking exactly. like oh god <laughs> now for those who have anxiety for instance this must be an extraordinary i mean i have i have my own anxieties but for whatever reason not right now it's the that strangest thing this this has been a different moment for me. It's, it's when things are going well that I find it really difficult. <laughs> when things are difficult, I find that I level out. But for a lot of people, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult, and they're going to need significant supports. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to take that seriously, too. And, and I think that starts with saying everybody gets to take pressure off of themselves. Everybody gets to take pressure off of one another. However, big asterisk, there is going to be a class of people out there who don't have that that luxury because they're out there keeping us all safe and alive yeah, and we totally. ought to provide them whatever they need at whatever cost. Yeah. Yeah. Or the people who we always designate as undeserving of support, who I think risk being further stigmatized because they're unable to keep social distance and, you know, like bodies that we haven't deemed productive, like homeless people in Vancouver, you know, I was walking through the park and there are people living in the park and I thought this sort of, demand to to keep social distance is starkly contrasting what's happening here. And I worry that um, we are going to need to check ourselves in terms of uh, who we think we're helping through what means, Uh, not just frontline workers, but uh, people without homes. You know, that's really on my mind these days in in Vancouver where where we see this all the time. Yeah, me too. And and again, it brings it back. I hope that we see a permanent shift in how we think and and Mm -hmm. what we expect and how we act so that we can finally 
take these issues sufficiently seriously, not just during the pandemic, but but after it as well. Mm -hmm. I totally Uh, agree with you. I've also been strangely not that anxious, but it has been easier for me to give myself permission these days than it ever has been. I think that might be the big difference is that all of a sudden most people are in the same boat. Mm-hmm. And so that permission that you perhaps didn't give yourself previously, it's much easier to give now because everybody has to do that. Yeah, totally. And, and you see, if you go online, I mean, you see very serious people who are very productive and they, we hold them up as the model of success and productivity, even though we shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, they're saying, well, I just had a nice cry in the shower and I can't yeah, do it right. today. And we're like, well, damn. <laughs> well, then, fine. <laughs> Welcome Neither am to I. the rest of us. Yeah, totally, and, totally. But I think that's it's a powerful true. moment. I would encourage people to be honest about that because when you say, for instance, I can't go outside because I'm presumably high risk, or mm-hmm. you say, I'm person X and I had a cry in the shower today, it certainly says to other people, it's okay to be a human and it's okay to share that you're human. And I think that's yeah. extraordinarily useful for us right now. I think it's beautiful. And we're seeing a dramatic shift and it's happening fast. The world is unrecognizable and the potential for us to become social creatures again. I feel really optimistic about it. And in fact, it it makes me want to cry tears of hope, actually, which is a nice feeling. (laughs) And that's a perfect place to leave it as we hit our time. Tears of hope at a critical juncture. Thank you for coming and talking to me remotely together apart. Thank you so much for calling. (laughs) I will see you in the text. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you're keeping safe and healthy. I hope you give yourself permission to just be, to relax, to do what you can, to set modest goals, to reset them when you fail. I hope you care for yourself and for one another. And a special thank you to everyone out there who is keeping everyone safe and fed and healthy, all the frontline workers, including marginalized workers who are driving, who are delivering, who are stocking shelves and who are making this all go at a time of of extraordinary pressure and risk and fear. Um, My thanks to everyone and solidarity. We are all in this together apart. Thanks for listening.